Hello and a very warm welcome to the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. This week, I am privileged to be joined on the podcast by Aaron Smith from Principal Power. Principal Power is a technology and services provider for the offshore deepwater wind energy market. The company's Windfloat Floating Wind Turbine Foundation has offered an innovative solution that aims to reduce costs and risks for the installation and operation of offshore wind turbines. Aaron Smith is Chief Commercial Officer in charge of business development, strategy, commercial, and public affairs. Aaron joined Principal Power in 2016 and was promoted to Vice President Strategy and Commercial in 2018, with responsibility for guiding the company's strategic direction, driving economic competitiveness, and securing commercial value. Previously, Aaron was an economist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, where he directed a portfolio of work designed to identify high-value R&D opportunities for land-based and offshore wind technologies, providing the U.S. Department of Energy with strategic decision support. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thomas, thanks for having me. Really excited about this. If I just start off with a the kind of general background question about Principal Power, um, could you tell me a bit about the history of developing Principal Power's wind flown t- technology and its application in floating offshore wind? Okay, Principal Power was founded to unlock the deep water offshore wind resource. Um, we deployed the wind float technology, which is a three-column semi-submersible supporting a wind turbine on one of those columns, um, first in 2011 in Portugal. And that unit operated for five years before we repurposed it for installation at the Kincardine site in Scotland. And over the course of, of the last several years, we've been developing a series of projects between 25 and 50 megawatts to really fully prove out the technology at commercial scale um, before we move to the bigger projects in the 100 plus um, megawatt size. Thanks very much, Aaron. That's very interesting. And um, what advantages does floating offshore wind have over traditional fixed offshore wind turbines? So fixed bottom offshore wind turbines are piled into the seabed, and as a result, they have a um, direct structural connection with costs that tend to scale in an exponential way with water depth. What floating technology does is it decouples the structure from the seabed and just connects um, the platform to the seabed with mooring lines, which are um, flexible and um, compliant. This allows uh, us to install offshore wind turbines in any water depth, really ranging from 40 meters at the low end to well over a thousand meters at the high end. And what that does is it allows us to go and um, follow the best wind resource for uh, an offshore wind project without really being constrained by water depth. The advantage is that this allows us to really go beyond the horizon to, um, to build our offshore wind projects. And it unlocks resource in markets that don't enjoy the shallow seabed that we see in Europe and China and the other markets where the fixed bottom offshore wind market has developed um, very successfully over the last 20 years. And it expands it to those markets that have uh, deep waters, which include um, the west coast of the US, Japan, um, Korea, etc. And it, it, it really provides access to this very large resource. So the IEA 
estimates that um, the fixed bottom wind resource and the floating wind resource combined can power planet Earth over 18 times uh, in terms of the uh, overall potential. My goodness, that is quite a lot of potential. Um, and just looking at various markets and how this is going forward and being developed, which offshore mar wind markets would you say are currently looking particularly promising in relation to the development of floating offshore wind? I think that one of the exciting things about floating offshore wind is that it's actually quite difficult to <laughs> identify um, which markets are going to move first and fastest. And, and that's actually part of what makes our job as, as a technology developer so challenging. Um, I think in the fixed bottom wind space, you know, it was pretty easy over the course of its development to identify, you know, the top three to five markets to really focus on and, and um, move forward with. But when we look at the floating space, we have about um, 20 markets that have active projects that are moving forward with realistic time frame, and we're tracking over 65 gigawatts of projects that are under development. Most of these projects are in their early phases, and they are dependent on policy and regulation to support them in terms of um, being able to obtain site control and the offtake agreements and eventually the permits that would allow them to come online. And so a lot of which markets um, do move first are going to be dependent on um, uh, the, the ability of the policy and, and, and regulators to create those enabling conditions. I think the markets that we see as probably the most predictable are those that have existing structures for building offshore wind in place. And so uh, the UK to us is one of the markets that we expect to move first. It's, it's one where we're, we're quite focused on. Um, France as well has is the first country to define a competitive floating auction for a uh, commercial scale floating wind project. And you know we're also building a demonstration project in the French Mediterranean. So we see that market as, as one that is, is very high potential. But then we also see markets that still have some progress to be made on, on the regulatory front, but have announced enormous ambitions. So you look at Korea, which is looking at building um, 14 gigawatts of offshore wind by, by 2030. And they have a very uh, ambitious government-led plan to move quickly with this, this, this industry. So um, in that sense, we're quite excited there. Then of course, there's our home market um, of the United States where the US West Coast encompassing the California market as well as Oregon, Washington, the Gulf Coast, and then the, the East Coast is all progressing under um, the Biden administration's Build Back Better program, um, which is calling for uh, a substantial amount of capacity to be installed by 2030. So we're really excited to see the progress there. Thank you, Aaron. That does sound like there is a lot kind of in the pipeline and being developed. I mean, am I right in saying that, you know, with floating offshore wind, it's kind of theoretically possible in most areas, but it's usually a matter of kind of regulation and uh, enabling these projects rather than it is rather than a sort of question of, you know, kind of natural conditions, given that they're specifically designed to operate in quite deep water, unlike fixed bottom offshore wind. Yeah, I think there's just a tremendous 
amount of flexibility with the technology and you know where fixed bottom offshore wind has been really constrained by water depth floating offshore wind does release um, us from that constraint and allow us to go after the best wind resources and in many cases that also allows us to select sites that are uh, deconflicted with other ocean users such as the fisheries and, and make sure that we're avoiding any sensitive environmental areas um, i think the aspect that is really exciting for the industry and could lead to kind of a further decoupling of locational constraints is the potential to um, produce renewable fuels from offshore wind projects and um, if that would effectively allow us to not even need to be proximate to load centers and uh, transmission grid points. So one of the projects that we're really excited about is um, the ERM Dolphin project that we have um, moving forward under support from Bayes in the UK um, and with partners ERM Tractabel as, as well as several others. And that project aims to demonstrate a 10 megawatt wind turbine located on a wind float that also includes uh, uh, desalination and, and electrolysis um, facility so that we could, instead of exporting electricity, directly export um, hydrogen under pressure uh, over a subsea pipeline. So that's that's something that we're really excited about for, um, you know, further removing the constraints and, and being able to decarbonize uh, very challenging sectors like heavy industry and uh, and transportation. Well, that does certainly sound very exciting indeed. And I hope that uh, more progress is made in that area in relation to fuels like green hydrogen, of which I'm personally a massive fan, I think. <laughs> Just thinking about uh, financing these projects, um, is there currently sufficient confidence from lenders to support a large-scale floating offshore wind project financing? And why or why not? We see that there is, but it will depend on the project. So um, I think as with, with every large infrastructure project, it really depends on, on having the right set of conditions uh, to give the lenders confidence and technology is a, a subset of that. Um, so while we have gone through the, the process of, of bringing bank finance to the Windflow Atlantic project um, with our partners at, at Wind Plus and proving that the technology is uh, bankable and, and able to get through those uh, reviews by lenders, independent engineers, and, and meet the uh, the bankability tests. We also see that the um, regulatory environment really matters. The contractual structure really matters, and um, that you can't necessarily extrapolate the fact that one technology performs well to other types of technologies that might have a similar operational track record. I think we see that the really the, the most interesting um, questions in the floating offshore wind market as as you get beyond, um, you know, does the technology work? Does it deliver power as per uh, expectations? And you know, is it capable of supporting um, you know these these realistic business cases that you can then bring to a bank to structure? Is how do you package uh, the different risks involved in the project? How do you bring contractors together to deliver them? And um, I think we see a lot of different approaches in the market ranging from multi-contract to EPC. And we're really working to 
you know, influence those towards what we see as um, having the right ingredients for, for success. And then we'll, we'll try to bring the uh, banking community along with us as, as we um, basically substantiate why we and our, our customers are, are making these decisions on contract structure. Thanks, Aaron. And, and just thinking about subsidies and that sort of funding for floating offshore wind, I mean, as floating offshore wind development accelerates, do you think it's likely to need feed-in tariff support for a while, or do you think it'll be likely to move into the CFD or even merchant space fairly quickly? I think that the most important thing right now is to have um, a degree of, of predictability in the revenue stream. So we, we believe that CFDs are a, a very uh, apt mechanism to bring floating offshore wind projects to market. We see that, um, you know, at least initially, there is a need for projects that are, are stepping stones up to full commercial scale. Um, and th those projects, which you know, nominally would have rated capacity between 100 and 500 megawatts, are likely to need additional support beyond um, the fixed bottom offshore wind projects that we're seeing win uh, CFD or, or merchant auctions uh, today. But we do believe that as we get to the same scale, this kind of gigawatt to multi-gigawatt scale, um, floating wind projects will deliver the same uh, sort of eco economics that we see from fixed bottom projects and remove the need for subsidies in, in the you know, five to 10 year period. So uh, we are quite optimistic about this. We see offshore wind as a, a market that is um, really highly uh, dependent on economies of scale to bring it down cost competitiveness. But once you are able to achieve, achieve those economies of scale, um, you know, through a, a portfolio or a pipeline, uh, we see being able to obtain uh, competitive cost levels quite quickly. And part of the reason for that is that we're really able to leverage the same kind of technology configurations and developments um, in the supply chain that we've seen be so successful in the fixed bottom space. So the projects that we're bringing online today involve wind turbines between eight to 10 megawatts um, in, in size. And the projects of the future that we're, we're currently designing involve wind turbines between 12 and 16 megawatts. So um, we're already, I guess, on the, the same cost reduction curve as the fixed bottom industry. Uh, it's just a matter of, of building up the supply chain in a predictable way to make sure we can uh, get to that same scale. Thanks, Aaron. And just a final question. You were just mentioning the sort of multi-gigawatt or multi-megawatt scale of floating offshore wind, and that that is definitely a point you want to get to quickly in the future. Are there any remaining challenges standing in the way of reaching that point for floating offshore, do you think? I think that there are a myriad of challenges. and. Um, <laughs> But it's always good to talk about them and bring them to the surface, right? Um, in in the first sense, you know what we really need as an industry is uh, we need to have access to sites and have customers that have secure control over those sites. So we're very encouraged by um, leasing rounds such as Scotwind, which seeks to award uh, a number of different sites to a number of different developers which will then allow them to mature the projects, uh, select the technology and build out the supply chain in a way that has a, a credible timeframe. We see one of the, the biggest challenges is, is, is just the scale of what is required to 
build an industrial project. We're talking about you know delivering uh, 50 of these these very large structures in the space of one to two offshore uh, installation seasons, coupling them with wind turbines, connecting to them to mooring systems, and and bringing them out to um, uh, bring them into operation. That requires a large amount of coordination um, with the supply chain. You know, it, it is possible, but it requires years of work, and it requires um, really a understanding of what we need to industrialize from the beginning. So one of one of our advantages, I think, is that we've gone through the process of designing, delivering, installing, and operating uh, to pre-commercial scale projects. And we're able to feed all of those lessons learned back into our design process before we start the design for the uh, next commercial phase projects. And that's really important because it means that um, we understand the things that can uh, maybe go not so well in these, these deployments and we can adjust them to avoid making mistakes that we would have to make, you know, 30 to 50 times in a row <laughs> if we were to uh, make them on a commercial scale project. So in this sense, um, I think experience is, is really crucial and um, people should proceed with, with caution um, if they're going to try out a, a new technology. Our, our view is that you really should demonstrate things at a, uh, a, a pre-commercial scale before you move to a full commercial scale for that reason. Thanks very much, Aaron. And unfortunately, I think that's all we're going to have time for today. But Aaron, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast today. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thanks so much, Thomas. It was a pleasure and uh, look forward to talking again. Thanks to everyone for listening and be sure to tune in again next week for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure news from Proxima.